Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books Network. I am Vladislav Lilic, a doctoral candidate in modern European history at Vanderbilt University. In today's episode, I am thrilled to host Dr. Ari Joskowitz, Associate Professor of Jewish Studies, European Studies and History at the very same Vanderbilt University and a dear mentor of mine. We will talk about his new monograph, Reign of Ash, Roma, Jews and the Holocaust, hot off the Princeton University Press. Jews and Roma died side by side in the Holocaust, yet the world has no not recognized their destruction equally. In post-war decades, the Jewish experience of genocide increasingly occupied the attention of legal experts, scholars, curators, and politicians, while the genocide of Europe's Roma went largely ignored. Dr. Yoskowitz tells the story of how Roma turned to Jewish institution institutions, funding sources, and professional networks as they sought to gain recognition and compensation for wartime suffering. Reign of Ash recounts the entanglement of Jewish and Roman quests for justice, challenges us to rethink the way we remember the Holocaust, and probes the means by which historical narratives are made and transmitted. Dr. Yoskowitz, thank you for joining New Books Network and for taking the time to talk to me about your work. Delighted, delighted to be here. As is customary on the channel, I will start us off by asking how your previous intellectual and research trajectories had led you to write Reign of Ash. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my so my first book dealt with the interactions between two groups that in some settings were minorities too. So my first book was about Jewish anti-Catholicism or anti-clericalism, so Jews criticizing the Catholic Church. Um, And I won't go into what I argue there, um, but it set me up with a certain sensitivity to questions of minorities interacting with each other. So rather than focusing on what Jewish history had really done for for decades and, and before that, the way Jews also conceptualized their own trajectory in the 19th and 20th century is this logic of minority and majority, which we actually get all in, in, with that language only in the, in the early 20th century, really. But but that, that larger concept of they're a minority, so there's a majority, and what really matters is how they relate to each other. Um, I was sensitive to the fact that basically how people define themselves is not necessarily against something amorphous that is the society, but that people come in well different shapes uh, also for, for minorities when they try to define themselves. So they it's not the society, but Catholics, Protestants, uh, a class, etc. So minority minority relations were on my map. Um, that's that that is one starting point. Uh, and then I started uh, teaching the Holocaust. Um, I taught it now for over 15 years, Um, started actually as a grad student. It was the first class I ever taught, Um, uh, even though I wrote a book about the the late 
18th to early 20th century, I ended up teaching the Holocaust like so many people do in, in, when they uh, work on Jewish history. Um, and approaching that topic with this uh, sensibility uh, was very quickly, I came to the question, well, so I have victim groups. There's a quite an awareness, I think, in Holocaust studies, too, that there are victim groups that uh, have been discussed at detail, in deep more detail than others who have not. And I think also talking to colleagues, we all struggle with the question, how do we integrate these uh, various stories in what seems to just be a Jewish story? How do, how do we integrate these? But for me, the question was not just how do I integrate them, but a question I'm still struggling with. How do I integrate questions of Jewish suffering with, with those of other groups, various other groups, actually? How does one teach that? But it is really the interaction of the two groups. Um, and I think this came up from my students, too, actually. Um, you know, you read about one group, you read about another group, and you wonder, what, how do they feel about each other? And as I was preparing you know, to further develop my course, I was looking for material, um, primary sources, for example, that I could teach. There was clearly no secondary material that, that, that I thought was was really comprehensive and, and would, would help in an undergraduate class. So I was looking for primary sources. And even here, it was fascinating for me to see that but the, the internet guides us towards certain things. It's not just that it's not just our laziness when we look in the internet. We we actually get a sense of of what is what is most accessible. And the things I found and, and it took me a while to find much more were, were things that were so obviously problematic. So the, the thing I found was uh, an entry by uh, Manuel Ringelblum, who is uh, a crucial figure in the Warsaw Ghetto, uh, organizing uh, some secret archive, and he had a diary as well. And he writes in his diary about the Warsaw Ghetto that the so-called gypsies have now been deported here. And he says several things that are that are complicated, but also problematic, um, including the gypsies are stealing. And uh, the, the only thing that you could find online is... A super short excerpt from this uh, diary entry, and then a footnote that was originally created by a historian uh, many decades ago at Yad Vashem that just said, yeah, it's true, the gypsies steal. Uh, here, see another diary um, by Kaplan in this case. So another famous diary uh, corroborates this. And this was really all there was out there. So um, I basically started this project simply wanting to figure out what, what is going on here. And it was from the very beginning a project not just about trying to understand the relationship between these two groups, but really understanding how we can, well, how we miss that question and how we, how we learn about these types of things. So as I was learning these things myself, and it's, this book is clearly the end point of a, of a long trajectory of somebody who was trained in Jewish history, modern Jewish history, trained in teaching the Jewish Holocaust, and then um, moving to learn something very new for me. Um, and at the same time, the book itself is about how we know the suffering of others, really, and how we, how we learn about them. So I ended up writing a book, I think, that, that, that matches my, my own trajectory. Um, and of course, there is always the irony there that, that right, I've, my own history is, not just because I mentioned my history in the preface, but really inevitably a book about the relations between Jews and Roma that focuses much on knowledge and, uh, and on scholarship, uh, written by somebody who is not just Jewish, but trained as a Jewish historian, means that I'm, I, I, right, it's, there, there's something always in there that where, where I'm also writing about myself, whether I admit it or not. 
Um, so this is, in a way, the, both the origin, you see both the origin and the endpoint, and how the origin story makes its way inevitably into the book. You have written a relational history of an unequal relationship, seeking to explain what it means for one minority to control a large part of another's archives and history. Would you perhaps specify how Jews in Roma suffered as, as you put it, proximate strangers during World War II, and what drove Roma to rely on the slowly developing Jewish and other non-Romani institutions to reconstruct their lives in the immediate post-war period? Yeah, um, glad to do that. Um, so I, first of all, let, let me just note that what I, what it, you know, the, the, this is a, could have been a book that you call a, a book on memory, um, which was for me from the very beginning, for various reasons, very uh, uns, unsatisfying. I, did, I didn't want to do that. And one of the things that I tried to do is go back to the Holocaust. So there is, this is about actual people interacting during the Holocaust rather than just the story of, of right, how people try of, with a memory competition and these sort of things. Um, so thinking about Jews in Roma next to each other, going back to back in time, I had the sense uh, even before. So I, I start to, with the Holocaust. Really, this is where it substantively starts, but it reflects my understanding of what their history is before that, even. Um, and that is of two groups who, um, in some ways, could be seen as similar, right? And, and, and there are some historians writers out there, scholars out there who tend to emphasize that they're outsiders, it seems. So don't outsiders have something in common always? And and my understanding was, uh, well, whatever they have in common, that that's sort of always whatever analytically we want to do with that. These people certainly did not necessarily feel connected. And even more than not feeling connected, which I mean, sometimes they felt and sometimes they didn't, it's, it's more that as, a, as broadly, they had very different trajectories. Um, in the way they self-organized, and in the way they knew about each other. Um, so entering the Holocaust, they, they are, you see the persecution of people who, in many crucial spots, um, really can see each other suffering, but don't know much about each other, ultimately. Which is why I, uh, it's, it's, they're, they're approximate strangers. It's really, also, they suffer next to each other for, to the largest part, but not with each other. Um, and what I try to do in, in the book is, is not give you a history, sort of, if you want, east to west or beginning to end, simply, of where where people interacted. That, that that's, if, if would be hard to be comprehensive. Um, I do try to be chronological to some degree. Um, but really, it's, it's about mapping out the types of interactions that we're seeing that are shaped by what happens before, people's prejudices against each other, people's understanding of who the other person might be, and then by the various situations that people are put into, um, uh, where in, well, in the worst case, they end up administering each other's fate um, from, uh, and this goes both directions, uh, both, both Jews who are in charge of Roma and Roma who are in charge of Jews. And these are often the most, most painful memories, I should say, and the most troubling memories uh, that, that come out of something that the Nazis really uh, set up <laughs> as problematic, um, a, a divide and rule sort of philosophy of, of simply administering uh, 
our surreal society. Um, the, um, but what I try to do is, is map it also from basically the most detached form of seeing each other suffer to this most involved form that I mentioned at the very end. Um, and what I, what I noticed is something that is, is perhaps paradoxical, which is the greatest solidarity, that is expressions of solidarity, really come when people see, hear, or even smell each other's demise or suffering with, with some detachment. So more solidarity usually comes from to some degree, some sort of distance. The more people are actually involved with each other, the more complicated things get. Yes, there are, of course, friendships that will be created, but for the most part, due to the types of places that we're seeing where this is happening, ghettos, camps, for example, um, we end up with, with with less simple solidarity between the two groups when they start to actually interact more with each other. Um, All of this matters quite a bit because of the story that comes later, which is the story of how we got to know about these things. Um, And here, so the the fact that so many, some of the earliest sources are produced by Jews, well, during the war, first of all, already. So I mentioned Emmanuel Ringelblum. We have an archive that is created by Jews here that is a major source for understanding what's happened in the Warsaw Ghetto. Um, Roma were only in the Warsaw Ghetto fairly briefly, but still, there's, there's, there, we, we don't have anything equivalent uh, in, in right, not, not even a fraction of that. <laughs> um, and this is true just across the board. Um, the earliest... Uh, historian, the earliest groups of people who then tried to record testimonies uh, in these historical commissions were Jews. There were fairly robust efforts to collect these these voices already. We get uh, the earliest historians. They come from different backgrounds, but we now understand actually that some of the most important early historians are survivor historians, um, sometimes in languages that were less accessible to the wider public, like Yiddish, but also, also in... in, in, in in, in sort of in, in German and English, um, so people who were themselves in some direct or indirect way victims of the Holocaust or relied on the sources produced by Jewish victims, and in all these cases, um, it's the interpretation at the moment of Jews of the other that really influences how Roma are seen. And one example I give is that if you just go by chronology. Um, Roma end up in camps that don't that, that look a bit different, but but at our camps, um, a bit earlier than Jews, uh, because of these municipal camps that are established after 1935, um, and then to an even larger degree around the time of the Berlin Olympics in 1936. Um, these are not perceived by Jews as camps. Um, they are camp sites. There's a, as far as I could find from from Jewish sources. All you can really say is that that they see this as being basically the state doing what states do, trying to get rid of people they find problematic, but they don't themselves fear of ending up in these camps. They're not made for them. They don't see them as a continuity. There is indeed incredible continuity between what the state does here uh, to what, what the previous regimes had done. So the perception is not that this is something that fits into the story of, of, of persecution. And as a result, there is no perception. The post-war historiography will also leave out these camps. Basically, the, the experiences of the survivors 
um, experiences of Jews at the time really shapes how later the, 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 the Holocaust will be narrated, um, whether public, whether in popular forums or, or really in, in scholarship. Um, so this is one thing I really tried to do in, in, in the work, bringing in a, the history of the Holocaust itself into a book that then, I suppose, 70%, 80% book then will deal with the post-war period. Um, in the post-war period, since you, you included that in the question as well, um, there, I mean, there, there is a, what, what we see is really this, this continuity to the before the Nazi era of Jews being, uh, irrespective of how, what the resources of individual Jews are, um, they can really access different types of networks that had been established in the 19th century and early 20th century. Philanthropic networks, um, forms of political self-organization, um, sometimes with an explicitly political bent, um, say labor Zionism, uh, or or indeed just just with a sort of liberal, vague uh, philanthropic uh, approach, um, joint distribution committee, uh, various European organizations. Um, so just can access these, and what what I try to show in these, this very early post-war period is really how Roma start to approach these Jewish organizations in fascinating ways. They basically, there is no equivalent self-organization on the Romani side um, in the in the countries of the Cold War West. And here, I do, so I should say for the Nazi era, it's basically Hitler's Europe I discussed, and eventually I moved to the Cold War West for, for much of the book. So that's Western Europe, Israel, United States, um, and so post-war period, it's, it's Western Europe mostly that I describe um, and where the survivors actually are uh, in, in in these areas. Um, and I and I and I try to show how they they sort of become they sort of try to tap into precisely these networks mm-hmm. um, with examples of Romos claiming to be the Jewish in some of the key camps. Or and this is the, the example I open, there's this fascinating list uh, kept by the Jewish community of Vienna, which uh, translates as uh, "Gypsies registered with us," and it's uh, it's a it's a fairly short list of um, of, of several dozen uh, Austrian uh, Roma uh, who uh, who registered with not technically the Jewish community, but with a organization that is closely connected to it. Um, which is called, which is called Katzepfaban, uh, which so it's, it's the Jewish branch of the general um, survivor uh, camp survivors organization, and um, this is where they end up. Be- why? Because if you say racial persecution, it seems to most people that the only people who really fill that category, even if it's an abstract category, but the only people who in the minds of most people fill that category are Jews. So if they want to claim some rights, uh, want to claim compensation, um, and at this period in 45, 46, this is more about just plain, uh, plain access to, to, the, to a certain administrative services from the state, um, they would go to Jewish organizations. Um, and it's, it's this pattern, really, that, that starts immediately after the war, that then will translate also into all these areas of knowledge production um, that I then that I that I continue tracing. And it, as you have indicated, this is also a book about intercultural misreadings, 
and the slow, painful attempts to overcome them. So in Chapter 3, for instance, you focus on the scholarly and administrative failures of numerous post-war Europeans, mostly to comprehend and address the Romani genocide. What conditioned such a clumsy and at times tragic ignorance and imperfect reckoning with the Romani suffering? Mm-hmm. And so, the, especially in chapter three, so, so I should say there's a, there's a whole trajectory in the book. Uh, it, and it goes from uh, people who know very little about each other um, to this point that, that, that we're at in chapter three, which is the, the sort of just after the immediate post-war period, but partially actually the immediate post-war period and then the next, the next decade or so, we have individual people who do ask questions. There's individual Jews who ask questions about Roma, um, uh, but they, they generally don't talk to Roma. Uh, they don't have access to them, the majority of these people, um, and they or, or very sporadic access, perhaps. Um, so what they mostly do is they talk to other survivors, um, which which is the so if, if there's a major basis for, for misunderstanding in chapter three, it's basically not talking to the person you're actually writing about. Um, and I, so the whole book then moves to moves to a situation where these people are not so isolated anymore and create networks to, to the play, then eventually to a situation where you have a fairly robust Romani civil rights movement. And this is about individual Jews fitting into what is a broader Romani movement, all the way then to what I think should be described as, as really things that happened in the past decades say 2000 to present, perhaps a bit earlier, but, but mostly mostly it's fairly recent, um, which is really that you have two groups that are fairly, that, are, that have similar enough, into organizations that are similar enough, where you have people interacting with each other, still with all sorts of asymmetries, but ultimately, um, in a way, being able to articulate them in shared spaces and, and having fairly shared trajectories. Basically, the professionalization of these NGOs um, takes care of a lot of that, but they, they are sort of in a similar enough space. Um, so that, that's the general trajectory. So chapter three really is at that point when we are looking at misunderstandings um, in a situation where, for the most part, people don't talk to Roma. Now, the one big exception are the so-called, so it's sometimes called Gypsy Lorism. It's, this is named after the, the main organization that focuses on what is now called Romani Studies, which was the so-called Gypsy Lore Society that, that um, remains actually the name of the, the organization until today of the, the term Gypsy is, is seen as, as, as offensive uh, by, by many Roma, uh, post-Roma uh, these days. Uh, but so this organization and scholars associated with it did pride themselves on talking to Romani sources, however. So the emphasis here is on Roma who um, are the subject of their studies, and they are the subject of their studies when they are at their most at their most Romani as far as the scholars are concerned. So they, they should please speak in well either in Romani or so they can study their language. They should tell folk tales that are sort of folksy if you want. Right? They're not interested in how, you know, in, 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 in the minute people move out of particularly traditionalist context, they're sort of disappointed and say these are not authentic people anymore. Um, so 
the lead, the, the, the secretary of that society is a very interesting figure by the name of Dora Yates, and she's one of the subjects of, of this chapter. Uh, she comes actually from a fairly, from a very well-established British family. Uh, like many of these scholars who, who, who study Roma at this time, they, they sort of, it's about the difference, right? She's, these are people who are completely different from her, and she, she really uh, embraces this difference, you know. Traveling around in wagons—it's—it's um, it's sort of a lifestyle. It's a—it's a—it's an occupational choice and a lifestyle, and an ideology at the same time. Um, so what I show is she is actually she does understand what's happening, and I—we I, have these wonderful letters she wrote to somebody who was sort of a platonic lover, um, the, the head of the board of the Newberry Library in Chicago, um, who at the during the war, they write these letters. Some of them are actually censored in interesting ways and have parts cut out, um, but uh, not the parts that I'm interested in, mostly geographic parts about where the last bombs fell. Um, she, so we can see that she changes her attitude towards what is happening with Roma. We can basically see how she's starting to understand this is a story like the Jews. There, there are people who are being murdered here. And she eventually will be one of the first people to really write an article that will actually be fairly influential for a Jewish magazine, however, um, about the fate of, of, of the Roma in Europe. And many people will keep citing that article for decades to come until you get more, more serious scholarship. And she bases that information on, on people who are her correspondents, um, including Romani correspondents. Um, but none of this ever really enters into this sort of semi-academic uh, Romani studies that exists in, in that society and, and in this in that, that particular world of so-called gypsy lorism, where she herself, and it's so fascinating for me, she, she publishes a book of folk tales. Um, and it's, it's, it's clear by this time, this is, I think it's published in 48, um, um, that the people who she collected this from, well, I mean, if, even if the individual good chance that the individual died, but even if they didn't die, their communities <laughs> have been murdered. Um, so you're, you're basically this sort of trans-historical, sort of so-called tales of the gypsies. Um, you can still do that in this context. Um, when you are aware, when you should be aware that, right, that, that something else happened. And what I, what, I, what I diagnose here is this inability, basically, at this juncture of these traditionalists who are the only people who really talk to to Roma um, with that type of access to, to media um, to, to write a new type of history, a history that understands that the genocide has happened and, and to collect stories of a new genocide rather than some, some of stories of, of, of a unchanging uh, sort of the, the primitives of Europe. Um, and I and I trace also the efforts of others to contact that society. And one of the people is Raphael Lemkin, who is, is known as, as the person who coined the term genocide. And I I, I, I show how he um, tries to get in touch with Yates uh, to find out more, and basically doesn't. And, and it's the, the title of the chapter is Blank Pages, and that's that's in part based on the fact that he wrote this history of the. Of, he had various projects, and one of towards the end of his life, he has this massive manuscript which is sort of an overview of all, all sorts of genocides and he has a page um and he has a very expansive view of what constitutes genocide and he has a page on um well on the romani genocide as we would call it today um and it's just a blank page that's because there wasn't <laughs> that much he could collect um and ultimately the other things i trace and this go is, is really a central part of the book too are, are these early interviews 
um, that are collected, for example, by David Boder. And uh, so what, what I trace is how do people learn to ask questions? So I'm interested here, when I listen to these interviews, I'm not so much inter interested simply in what people say about Roma. I'm interested in how the interviewer, how, how, do, how do we learn that an event has happened? And, and it's his interviews because they're recordings and we know their chronology. Uh, we can literally retrace what it means for somebody who knows nothing about this, um, who has himself an Eastern European background, but comes at that point from, from actually also Chicago, from uh, what will be the Illinois Institute of Technology, with a big recording device, how he would learn to ask questions, to understand that there's a story here that another group has, has, has suffered. Um, so what I try to trace here are indeed the misunderstandings, the misinterpretations, but also the, just the, this, this process. I'm, I'm very interested in this process where, where, where empathy, we, and then I opened the introduction with this as well. It's personal, but really what the aim of the introduction, the preface, sorry, the preface is, is to introduce this sense of uh, empathy, in this case, actually, in the sense of, uh, um, uh, of um, identification, uh, an emotional identification with the victims really um, is always closely tied up with our ability to know um, about things. So um, it's, 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 it's about essentially about this, this, this intersection of, of something that is, I think it's, this is a book also about, about in some ways, emotions, identification, solidarity, but it is always tied up with, with economies of knowledge in some mm -hmm. Thereafter, um, you deal with Roma's arduous attempts to see their own genocide recognized and the Nazi perpetrators punished. So what were the legal political factors that made these efforts so vexing? And why were Jews and Roma recipients of what you called asymmetrical justice? Mm -hmm. So I, I decided, so like for many of these other cases, uh, there, there one, one can go different places, right, in, in terms of analysis. And I should say, um, as, especially also when it comes to the chapters on the war, there, there's wonderful new scholarship that is that is about to come out. Um, there are various projects that deal in detail with places that I did not discuss. What I what this this book tries to for a topic that I think hasn't received any attention tries to really set up uh, a, a framework. Um, and so in this chapter, I go for the big big trials. Um, I, I really discuss three trials that are each structurally really. So it's not just that they're big trials, but each of these trials really sets up a particular type of promise um, to, to Jews, but also to Roma. Um, and in particular ways, disappoints these promises. So the three trials are the Nuremberg trial, and I, I, I look actually, so they're, they're the, this is called IMT, the International Military Tribunal, which is the, the best known one, right, where, where all four uh, allies are still actually working together to get convictions. Um, and eventually you have these uh, subsequent Nuremberg trials, which are actually um, run by, by the Americans only. Um, uh, and I, I, I do look at both, but, but my focus is really on the international one uh, for, for, for the most part. As I look at Nuremberg, then I look at the Eichmann trial in, in 1961, and I look at the Frankfurt-Auschwitz trials. And each of those have a different promise. So the, the, the IMT is the promise of international justice 
for the victims in some, some general way. Um, so this is what Jews uh, expect. This is what uh, many Roma expect. And I have, have some letters here to, to, to document that. Um, it's a trial that, to the disappointment of many of the survivors, does not focus on, on testimony, actually. It's, it's mostly a documentation trial, but that will be really what it can deliver, uh, documents. So the promise here is there's international recognition and you will produce something authoritative coming out of that that will help you subsequently to explain what happened and to make claims. And the Iceland trial is uh, an example. The again, these are usually singular examples. They're promises that were never kept again. Right? There's there was no other international trial for the Holocaust actually. But at that moment, that's that's sort of the hope. The Iceland trial is this moment when it seems the victims can call the perpetrators to, to justice themselves. It's a Jewish state trying the murderers of Jew, murderer of Jews. Um, in this case, also, you have this promise of the, the witness will be central. So this is a trial that really put the victim, victim witness at the center of the trial. That also will be something that people will, people will desire from future trials. Then the Frankfurt-Auschwitz trial seems to fulfill that function too. Lots of witnesses for very different reasons than in, 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 in Jerusalem. Can't go here into, into all the details, um, but it's really the example of the perpetrator nation. And these are these are just right. These are shorthands for something that's much more complicated. But West Germany here puts on trial um, with uh, traditional homicide laws, basically uh, these these guards in, in Auschwitz with. Test with with an emphasis also on, on on testimony, just to get the convictions, not so much to present their stories. Um, so this is the third type of justice, and then I actually have a fourth one, which is is often forgotten, which is international corporate litigation and, and, and class action lawsuits and all that sort of stuff, um, which which turns out to be more productive for many people than the criminal trials when it comes to recognition and and, and making available resources to tell stories. Um, but so what, what I, what I try to show is how each of these creates their own, their own distortions. Um, perhaps I can, I can focus on one of them, um, just the number of trials. Um, and I, I don't know, you can, you can tell me how, how much time I have, because I, I do, do write a lot about each of those. Uh, the number trial I found interesting because, um, it does set, so, so, very often, this is generally true for this whole scholarship that can be called memory, questions of judicial reckoning. There's, there's it's questions of how much did people know, how much did people were able to say. Uh, people come to different types of conclusions. Historians have come to different types of conclusions. There's a general tendency to, to not say anymore that, that you know, there was nothing there simply. But ultimately, the, the question that is very the, the the answers that people give usually don't actually reflect on the question of compared to whom, compared to an abstract moral standard, or compared to particular people. So the advantage I have here is that I actually look at two groups. <laughs> um, so I, when I say something happens more or less, it's precisely in the context of that comparison. So there's a debate about how much was the Jewish Holocaust present at the Nuremberg trials. 
And if our expectation is that it looks like a 1980s, 90s textbook on the Holocaust, then the answer is not very much. If you look at how much documentation was produced about it and how often the murder of Jews, however framed, was part of the trial, then you would say quite a bit. Um, one achievement of, the Holocaust, of, of, of that trial is that it offers uh, what we would later call an intentionalist narrative. So, right, people familiar with Holocaust uh, scholarship, uh, a, a debate actually that I think has, has disappeared, right? This emphasis either on it's the premeditated aspect and ideological drive of it, intentionalism, basically they, had, they, they wanted it, they wanted to do that, they've had the opportunity, so then they did it, versus a functionalist uh, approach that emphasizes uh, structure, but even more process, I would say there's something iterative about it, there is uh, an emphasis on, on multi-level experimentation and, and, and ad hoc um, reactions to certain situations that leads to genocide. Uh, looking from today's consensus, which is somewhere in between, right, wherever you're veering, perhaps more towards functionalism, but wherever it's, it's sort of looking back at, out at the Nuremberg trial, you realize this is a very crude uh, intentionalism that comes out of the trial, which is not surprising considering that a conviction of people for Holocaust was not on trial, but but uh, well, in this case, crimes against humanity or, um, or war crimes requires intentionalism. In, in, intention. Um, and I go into detail how this is all constructed, uh, the, how the conspiracy uh, charges in, 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 in Nuremberg are constructed. Um, and the bottom line is what, what it makes a lot of sense for the pros prosecution to say, these people wanted precisely this, starting with putting, they put into evidence, for example, the, the NSDAP's Nazi Party's uh, party program from 1920, basically reconstructing since 1920 how they, they had it out for the Jews, and then they did it, and thus people here on trial, like uh, the editor of the Stürmer, say, uh, Steicher, uh, really you know, are, are, are responsible in a judicial sense uh, for what is happening here. Uh, there's, there's motive... Um, this this becomes essential. There's there's a lot of critique. There's a great book by, by David Bloxham who shows well that that this sort of approach really leads to distortions in itself. Certain groups will be not involved. This is also convenient for groups like the Wehrmacht, the, the German army, to say well it's just the crazies who had this intentionalism. We were not, uh, you know, we were wasn't us. Uh, so there there's certain drawbacks. What it wasn't, however, in terms of drawbacks, is a drawback for the survivors. Uh, the survivors, the Jewish survivors, had a very clear story at this point um, that they could offer. So they were unhappy about many things uh, we know, including that there were no, very few Jewish witnesses. One of them actually opens the book. Um, but whatever they were unhappy about, there was no discrepancy between the survivors and the prosecutors understanding that uh, genocide here means simply there's a there are people with a strong genocidal intention, and eventually they they, they do it. They, 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 there are all these fantasies, clearly violent fantasies about removing Jews, and eventually they get a chance to do it. And all of this is comes and all of this is documented with primary sources, what we call them, uh, which are published uh, in translation, which is an incredible boon for what would be Holocaust scholarship. Right? You can point to volumes that are governmentally sanctioned. To show authoritative histories, 
and there's a whole it's sort of it's it's, it's a primary source essay really that that appears in this volume about the persecution of the Jews. Uh, it's sort of an essay with um, the within the documents reprinted that show exactly what happened. The problem with Nuremberg is that this sets up a particular expectation. And I didn't go into how the, the Romani genocide was, was implemented, but, but in general, the types of sources you get from the, the Romani genocide and what could be found at that point in the types of archives that they were seizing did not lend themselves to the same story. So the result was that the intentionalism, which we might ourselves not hold anymore, um, had to be proven for the Romani genocide. So basically, this was used against Roma in compensation trials, for example. A judge would basically look at the, the file and say, well, the, and literally cite, for example, the, the program in 19, say, here, the Nuremberg trials established 1920, the party program is essential for the, to prove anti-Semitism and to prove this whole story. I don't see anything equivalent here for Roma. Whereas he would have said gypsies. Um, so clearly, this is a different case. Or and this, this this sort of comparison actually would go all the way down to comparing the the details of persecution, basically taking Jews then as as the standard, right? What types of uniforms did you wear? What types of insignia did you have? Who exactly was deported at what point? And using Jews as a benchmark in, in what is you know makes it makes very little sense from a historical perspective, but it's basically a, a judicial application of, of, of landmark decisions, whether from courts or in administrative settings, sort of becomes a, a grounds for exclusion. Um, so that would be the, the Nuremberg story. And I don't know if I've, I, I can say more about, about the others. Ultimately, just short of it, perhaps, is that, that the moments of witnessing uh, which which were sort of a, a thing that didn't happen at Nuremberg but people that people wanted turned out to be a very ambivalent thing uh, so witnessing in a trial like the Eichmann trial offered the the witnesses certain ability to to speak at length about their suffering because that's how the Eichmann trial in particular was set up but in the other trials it's basically a cross-examination and witnessing is is a highly troubling activity, a re-traumatizing activity very often, uh, and it is very often a humiliating activity for survivors, Jewish and, and Romani. Um, in the Romani case, as I tried to show, uh, for various reasons, an, an even, even more problematic um, experience for those who actually get called um, to testify. And I should perhaps say Frankfurt is also interesting because you have these... Um, First, uh, first, I mean, you actually get Romani um, witnesses, I should say, even in the sort of Nuremberg doctor's trial. It's not, these are not the first witnesses, Romani witnesses. But, um, but it's, it's one of the earlier cases, really, when, when, when Roma and German Sinti actually get, get called uh, to, to testify in court under oath. Um, and, and, yeah, so what I... And, and that that in its own right is is a fa is, is is actually makes it makes it a fairly fascinating case study, and in this case there's there's so each time I, I poke at something, when it comes to these stories um, and these these situations, you you, you encounter so th I found this so fascinating when working on this book you, you encounter these 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 ways in which Jews and Roma are always already connected. It's already there, right? It would be an uninteresting story to just say the Roma were ignored. 
but they were always already there. So in the case of the Eichmann trial, it's the judges who create the fantasy, the counterfactual of a Romani state to argue why a Jewish state can actually try Adolf Eichmann. In the case of the Frankfurt trial, there's this fascinating connection that there is this completely immaterial testimony of a Romani witness and their reasoning, not, it's not, it's, it becomes immaterial because of how the court handles it, not because of what the witness says, but, but what the court does with it. And so, in that, so problems with the pretrial um, investigation as well and misconstruing things. And it will be then 20, approximately 20 years later that there will be a different trial where a even Nazi um, and accused uh, well, accused Auschwitz guard, uh, says, well, we need to find the testimony from back then to, to actually help his case. And that whole, situ- that, that, that whole request in court will then lead to an investigation where people will actually find, discover that the Frankfurt Auschwitz trial was recorded and that the recording still exists. No, that was basically knowledge that was lost for 20 years. And it's because of we basically can hear the Jew, the mostly Jewish and non-Jewish witnesses at the Frankfurt Auschwitz trial today because of a Romani witness whose testimony was then basically was botched and where a, a, a defense lawyer for uh, an, an accused uh, guard then tried to then, uh, tried to use twenty years later <laughs> to um, to. Uh, in, in, in court. So there's so many stories where, where basically Jewish and Romani attempts at, at, at reckoning with the past were already connected, um, which, which, which made it for me also fascinating to, to read, so not just to write, but actually to research all, all, all these chapters, including what a judicial chapter, which may, might sound dry, but, but I, I, I thought it isn't uh, at all. Throughout the book, you also deal with the two groups' unequal capacities to conserve their histories and, and how hidden economies of knowledge production determined their claim-making. How do these lasting disparities shape the ways in which Jews and Roma have commemorated their parallel genocides since, let's say, the 1970s and the 1980s? Mm-hmm. And the, so the, the fascinating thing about these disparities is that um, you, 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 when writing a book, you write to, to multiple audiences, including uh, the audience consisting of the people you're describing. And um, I think to, to, well, certainly Romani scholars, Roma working in the field, but also just, just average Roma who care about, about their history in any way, and in some ways involved in any in, in type of NGO activity, etc. These disparities are completely obvious, right? You're describing something that is, is, is just utterly obvious. If you, if you write an article on the Romani Holocaust, I can assure you that the reviewer is going to, that at least one of the reviewers is going to be an expert on the Jewish Holocaust. How could it be otherwise, right? Basically, given the way the field is structured, given the way you know, we can do some PhDs, etc., and, and the size of the field, the funding for the field. Um, so it's completely obvious for one side why this is essential, um, but not on the other side, right? You, nobody will fault somebody 
you know, uh, nobody would ever send an article on the on the on the Jewish Holocaust to somebody whose main field of expertise is the Romani Holocaust. That, that, why would you do that? Um, Unless, unless the editor has, has some, some axe to grind and, and wants to prove something. Um, so th- these asymmetries are, I think, there's an asymmetry in the awareness of the asymmetry as well, is what I'm trying to say. Now, when it comes to, to this, the material base of the asymmetry, there, there's so many places where we can show this. Um, and perhaps the most vivid is just this, this element of testimony collections. And testimony collections became important in the 1980s and 90s, uh, really in, in the Holocaust history, with an attempt to hear the voices of the victims. Uh, right? there's, there's, a, there's some status that comes with, I think there's, there's an expectation actually these days to, to work um, as with, even if you're writing a history from above, to have elements of a history from below. And that very often means these oral testimonies or written testimonies, but increasingly we rely on terms of media we like to use uh, rely on, 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 on not even actually audio testimony which has become quite unpopular just video testimony um, and in Romani studies this is even more important because of the way the source well the community is constituted um, and, 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 and and just the types of sources that we end up getting and that were also produced when, once there was a stronger awareness and capacity to actually produce knowledge about the Roman Holocaust. So Roman testimonies are essential in Roman history, very clearly. Um, yet, the most accessible and largest archives of the Roman Holocaust in terms of testimonies are those produced to document the Jewish Holocaust. Uh, the biggest one of those is the Shoah Foundation, um, which is this larger endeavor uh, created originally by Steven Spielberg, uh, coming out of uh, his experience with Schindler's List and its proceeds to establish uh, a massive um, archive of these voices. He introduced it at Oprah Winfrey's uh, show, and it was a, it became a massive effort to, to interview people, um, mostly volunteers, basically, who have these short... Um, uh, you know, short training, short training, then go out to to to, to interview people. Um, there are over fifty thousand of these for Jewish survivors, and now they, they include many other groups. But Jewish survivors are the biggest group, and they over fifty thousand interviews. Um, yet we have around uh, over four hundred Romani testimonies, which is well, it's clearly if you if you look in terms of what the size is compared to the Jewish testimonies, that that's quite a small group, uh, consider also that they are in multiple different languages. Most scholars will only access certain of them. But wh- however you, 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 you know, no matter what the deficits are, it, it remains the biggest of these archives. There, I see no other archive that would have over 400 Romani testimonies that are broadly accessible. What happened a lot in Romani studies, and this has to do with the way European scholarship tends to be structured, um, is that that the, the testimonies come from either small NGOs or they came uh, from projects, right? You, European uh, tradition of scholarship is, is project-based very often. Uh, this is how many people uh, also in their <laughs> doctoral and postdoctoral period uh, fund themselves. You have whatever three-year projects and keep reapplying, etc. cetera. Uh, the result is that the project owns the testimony um, and that there is no central repository for them. 
And if you if you're unlucky, it's, it's somebody who started a career in this field, interviewed people, and then just stopped working in the field, and it's basically has, has testimonies in their drawer at home. Um, this is very different from this very large large scale centralized effort that really is based on not just Steven Spielberg, right? It's it's based on a whole on a whole network of a professionalized communal life with professional fundraisers and, um, you know, a whole series of, of professional collections eventually to universities. It's today at the University of Southern California. Um, all, all these things that require what we might call social capital um, and, 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 and pre-existing structures is where, where, where Jewish institutions have a massive advantage to the point where I think one can say that that much of the essential history of the Romani people are held by Jewish archives broadly conceived. And I say Jewish archives broadly conceived because technically, let's say the Holocaust Museum in Washington, this is a federal institution, not a Jewish institution, but it was, of course, created to document the Jewish Holocaust, um, whether, whether even, even if the, you know, the, whatever the governing body is, uh, the, the, the sovereign <laughs> overseeing it, or, or or whoever is working there, whatever their identity may be, right? The the, the mission clearly is to to document the Jewish Holocaust, and that also meant, especially historically, to right, to to produce something that 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 works for the survivors um, and and the people who claim to speak for them. Um, so, so I think these 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 asymmetries are are structuring the field, and it's 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 really the it's 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 what I'm trying to do in this book is is I think the the question of how knowledge works can can in itself sound like a like an esoteric topic, um, and the reason I I start the book with something personal plus knowledge um, is really because I want to communicate how these things are always connected, how the, the effective languages, the political languages that we have are always connected to what might just sound like dry scholarship. And right, there's always this, that scholarship seems to be out there in the ivory tower, and then we have the real politics going on. But they are closely connected, and we can see that in the Romani case. And we can see what happens when, when, when there's a disconnect between these things. Where, where the resources come late or not at all in for the Romani civil rights movement to produce to produce knowledge that that, that can compete in the political sphere. Um, so, but, and, and, and so one one way I set up this book is is also with this um, with this idea that um, there's a there's an asymmetry in the in the in the way these things are presented, and I, 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 the asymmetry, the way I describe it is, is basically, um, Jews say um, that they suffered like us, and that's a you know concession, <laughs> and Roma will say very often we suffered like them, um, and the book goes all the way to the place where today that is not clear at all actually anymore that this is how things will be will be described. But I would say this this type of description where one becomes a benchmark of another really matches on to the sphere of knowledge production. So it's this, this is something that, in a sense, structures individual, not just debates, but senses of self 
and is closely connected to the way we organize the study of the Romani genocide, study of the past in more abstract terms, and how the traces of the past are connected. So the, the material aspects, like testimonies, which ultimately are, well, they're digital. Okay. There's, there's a material base for them. Um, and, and I tried to do this, so this emphasis on knowledge production, I, I, I tried to do this also for one of the places where debates have been most public, and those are debates about the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C., um, which uh, where there were huge debates about what should be in the exhibit, and it remains a debate about the exhibit. And I tried to show what people are missing is that the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C. is an incredibly important archival center and center for the production of knowledge through its fellowship programs and other programming, and that things look different when you look when you, when you include that and don't focus on the what is, what is a pretty much until today more or less static uh, uh, sort of purpose built uh, the building was purpose built for the exhibits right it's hard to change um, ensemble of of, of 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 arrangements that that demonstrate the Holocaust to school classes and others visiting. So that knowledge production here really, really is essential, and it is it is not an abstract thing. Fascinating. Finally, where has this project taken you, Dr. Yaskovitz? What are you currently working on? So, uh, one thing I'm trying to do for my next for my next book is take something I've learned from this project, and 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 to see how much I can generalize it, deepen it chronologically, thematically. And that is the question of resources and memory. So the question, if you want, in, in, in sort of alliterative terms, it's money and memory. Um, what is so obvious when you talk about Roma and Jews, uh, obvious to me at least, is that this is not simply a question about memory in the abstract and represent questions of representation questions about uh, you know is our you know do do is there more competition or is there more interactions multi-directional memory do, do these things exist it is really about the material asymmetries that that matter really the reason what it's not just about thinking differently about it um, concept concepts are important I should say they, they, they do their role in this book too but ultimately it's a lot about how do you pay for knowledge of the past? How much does it cost you, basically, to produce knowledge? Um, so my next project wants to just take this insight from, from this particular constellation and make it broader. Um, and what strikes me, I mean, is that there's so much literature out there um, on questions of representation. Um, right? If we speak about this field of memory, whether it's historians, people from literature, theory, wherever you're coming from, this is, this is ultimately about how is history represented. And, and there is basically nobody who asks what seems to me actually, again, a natural question is simply the, the question, does it really not matter how we pay for this? Mm. That's not just the who we pay, but the, the how we pay for it. Um, and the only people who do care about this are the cynics, right? The people who will speak about the Holocaust industry. Or will you know? So it's basically a money. Money is a problem. <laughs> it's it's it, money is greed. Money money is so. It's a, which is not an economic history approach or even a financial history approach, right? It's, it's just a, it's just a cynical reading reading of people's motivations, which I don't believe. So I want to write an economic history that, like this book, is not reductive. I'm absolutely not interested in ta- asking any such well 
positioning this as a, as a book about, you know, it's all about the money. What I'm interested in is precisely how money, emotion, and the things we care about matter. And we, we all know this, right? Because if you want to write about the Holocaust, I mean, I, I was very lucky to get fellowships for this. And that's the sort of things we need. We, we all know when we apply, <laughs> we apply for things. We, we know that we need money only once it makes it into an analysis of how we got there. That, well, guess it fits into the acknowledgements, but never, never into the analysis. So, so I'm interested in how different types of organization of knowledge, emphasis on philanthropies, say, versus uh, an endowment funding in, your, in, in, in the U.S., as opposed to governmentalized memory, um, how those matter. Um, and I mean, it's, at this point, it's also still an open-ended question for me. So I, at least for me, the books that, that I find most interesting is if I also don't know the answer yet quite. Um, what, I, what, what I do know is precisely that, that, I, that, I, that, it, that it does matter, that, that money matters to, to how we organize things. And I should turn it around too. I just wrote an article that, that deals with that. Yeah. It's, emotion also plays a role in giving money, right? So if you look at philanthropy, why people give money, give money to, to, to Holocaust, uh, to, to things dealing with the past. Um, uh, you, can, you can see how emotion plays a role. Organizing fundraisers um, is about what well, political community, community, and, and again, effective ties. So I, I, I traced this actually in that case, case of that article in, in, in terms of the letters written to, to Simon Wiesenthal um, when they give him donations in the 1960s, um, when, when he becomes famous as the, the Nazi hunter and allegedly a complicated history, but seen as somebody who helped uh, catch Albert Eichmann. Mm-hmm. And, and it's just fascinating for me how people write their stories into the letters, among other things, that um, con- consist of a check as well. How they create uh, circles in places like New York mm-hmm. uh, and other places where, where the fundraising becomes part of how memory communities are, are established. So I think a complicated, a complex history of economics and the Holocaust that is not cynical. This, this is, this is and, and Holocaust memory and perhaps actually memories beyond that, I should add, um, is, 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 is what, I'm, what I'm looking for, what I'm, what I'm looking into, what I'm trying to research for, for my next book. Yeah, riveting. Dr. Yoskowitz, it has been a pleasure hosting you. Thank you for coming on, coming on to talk to us about your research. Thanks, thanks, thanks so much for having me. This, this was a great pleasure. Thanks so much.